0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover.
1: April 2020 through March 2021
0: ended up being the driest 12-month period on record. And with that in mind, we're talking to experts about the drought and how it interconnects with wildfire. The National Weather Service says last year Tucson saw just over 4 inches of rain. That's 6 to 8 inches below average. And as Ken Drews with the National Weather Service said already, that made 2020 the driest year on record. Drews says our monsoon last year, or as some called it, the nonsoon, didn't help much.
1: We started out okay early in the year, but then, you know, we, had, we ended up with the, the second driest monsoon on record. And that ended up, the period April 2020 through March 2021, ended up being the driest 12-month period on record. And accordingly, we started seeing the drought develop last spring, particularly really during the monsoon with the lack of precipitation when we normally would expect to get it. And then by October, we entered the exceptional drought category, which is the highest or worst drought category. And then that expanded throughout the fall and persisted through the winter to where we're at now.
0: Last week the Tucson Office for the National Weather Service put up a slide on Twitter that it was a satellite photo of our region in 2020 versus, you know, now. And the difference was really stark. I mean, there was some green in 2020. There's no green now out there.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had that, you know, a fairly decent winter, I guess you want to go twenty nineteen through early twenty twenty. We had some pretty decent rainfall, and obviously the the corresponding time period this year and very, very little precipitation, the differences really marked how how much drier it is now than than one year ago.
0: We got some rain and even some snow a couple of times last month down in the Valley of Tucson, certainly up in the upper elevations around town. We could see it all over the mountains. Is that going to help at all? Every little bit helps to some extent, but in some areas, we even got what we
1: might call normal precipitation for March, but still not enough to really make a significant dent. We need to have several months of the same. April doesn't look like it's probably going to help us out a lot, and we don't normally get a lot in May. We're really kind of banking on some monsoon precipitation this year in 2021 to hopefully uh, to
0: get us to climb out of it. We're talking with Ken Drews. He's with the National Weather Service in Tucson. So you just gave us a little preview heading into the monsoon, but overall for the year, and I know it's early to predict what the monsoon might look like, but looking out for the rest of the year, is there any hope for precipitation
1: out there? There is
0: some hope, actually. The Climate Prediction Center
1: issued their their latest outlooks for the summertime for our monsoon, and they are actually... Leaning toward above normal precipitation, if you can believe that, we haven't seen that in a long time, for the monsoon months, summertime months. So that is uh, at least some hope there that we could see, if not above normal, at least maybe at least get a normal monsoon type of precipitation. Although, you know, it's really the winter precipitation where you get the widespread events, either soak the mountains or lay snow on the mountains, that really helps our drought overall. It's a little far out to predict this winter. There's no real good indications either way, wet or dry. But certainly, uh, if we could get a start during the monsoon, that would certainly go a long ways to helping out.
0: Everybody in Tucson talks about the weather. Is this isolated or Cochise County's dry, Santa Cruz County's dry, Pinal, the whole state, or is it just isolated here?
1: It's pretty widespread across the state and a lot of southwest, really. It's been a pretty dry period over a fairly widespread area.
0: And it seems like we've had a lot of wind lately also. Fire, red flag warnings last week, red flag warnings for this week. Does that play into the drought at all? Kind of the weather patterns that that could bring us moisture? And that
1: certainly doesn't help matters now because it dries everything out even more, especially with the really warm temperatures that we had at the end of March, early April. That feeds into, you know, just exacerbating fire weather conditions. Last year, we were so wet at this time that we had a lot of grass and fine fuels that then dried out and really provided kind of that ladder up to get to the mountains where it could start and spread quickly. The hope is always to get a jump start on the monsoon to where we can get that, at least get the humidity in here earlier. If we don't get the rain, at least we start getting the humidity up here to at least kind of calm conditions down somewhat.
0: That was Ken Drews with the National Weather Service in Tucson. The dryness isn't something new. Bill Smith is an assistant professor at the University of Arizona's School of Natural Resources and the Environment. He says it's been happening for decades. Smith and his colleagues looked at 50 years of data and found that periods of drought across the West are getting longer.
2: One of the unique aspects of the study was that we were looking at daily data. So a lot of previous work, they were looking at more weekly or monthly, not as high temporal frequency data. We saw what's been found in the past, temperatures going up, and in some cases, precipitation going down. Generally, across the dry regions, we do see mean precipitation going down. But I think some of the nuances of the paper were more in looking at this frequency of dry days.
0: Absolutely. I, I want to get to that. But I, just on a big picture question, what you found, does that mean that the drought we're in is really more the new normal?
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's always the need to consider kind of larger oscillations that could be driven by things like El Nino cycling. However, over this 50-year period, and even when we looked further back in time, actually, using all the weather stations across the West, it does appear that there's a significant pattern for some region regions in particular, like the Southwest, that it appears there is a drying trend over that long-term period. And actually, that drying trend looks like it's happening more during the winter period.
0: You also looked at, as you mentioned before, these dry intervals are increasing. What are dry intervals and how much are they increasing?
2: In looking at the daily data, we were able to essentially count days between rain events uh, and look at how the number of days between rain events, which we term dry days, changed over time over this past 50 year period. And for the region Southwest in particular, we saw pretty dramatic changes. We actually saw changes that were significant across the full Western US, but for the Southwest in particular, We saw dry days increase by roughly 50%. The average was at around 31 days between rain events, and that's jumped up all the way to 48 days between rain events.
0: To me, the layperson, that seems like a bad thing. But is that just my view as a layperson, or is this actually a really bad thing?
2: In general, what that means is that ecosystems now need to withstand much longer periods of drought. And typically that means enduring longer periods of stress. If you combine that with signals of warming and you have a 50% longer period of time that you have to maintain your current status, that could be pretty bad for a lot of different species.
0: We're talking with Bill Smith. He's an assistant professor in the University of Arizona School of Natural Resources and the Environment. You also looked at or discovered a lot of variability when it comes to precipitation. What is variability and what does that mean?
2: Variability is essentially, this could be on a year-to-year or season-to-season basis, essentially looking at how much precipitation varies. So from one year to the next, having a low precipitation to a high precipitation year, we essentially can calculate that over, say, a 10-year period. And so what we saw looking back over 50 years and what's been pretty consistent for changes across the West is that that variability is increasing. The extremes are increasing, really. The probability of a really dry year or even a really wet year is becoming more frequent.
0: Which obviously is tough on the ecosystems and also... Does your study look at all at, and maybe it's something that's the follow-on study, that what's causing all this variability in dryness over 50 years?
2: One that we know that's happening is that with warming air, you're basically causing thermal expansion, which increases the capacity of the air to hold water. This can lead to less frequent but more intense rain events, which is consistent with some of the things that we've found.
0: We talk about and we hear about this short-term drought becoming long-term drought, extreme duration drought. For things like agriculture, which has been so big in the desert southwest, what does that mean?
2: For agriculture, it might mean that we need to rely more on management, more on irrigation for longer periods of time. That's going to put uh, an impact on water availability. That could also mean losses for, for areas that may not have access to water due to water right situations. So again, it's just an additional stress on an already stressed system.
0: That was Bill Smith, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona's School of Natural Resources and the Environment. This week, we're checking in with experts about the state of drought in southern Arizona. For those of us in the West, we know that hot, dry weather can be a recipe for hot and fast megafires. Heidi Schuhl is the spokesperson for the Coronado National Forest. She says fire season is no longer an accurate term.
3: We don't call it fire season anymore. We, for years, have been calling it fire year, and that's a term that's starting to catch on now because fire season, quote-unquote, is is growing longer in other places as well. So we are dry. We have been dry. Uh, Apparently, we will be dry, and we are seeing ignitions occurring, and we're seeing fire behavior that's acting like fire would act in the middle of the summer. And this was in like March. So that's not really usual.
0: What do you mean when you say you see fires acting in March like they would later in the year?
3: Well, one example would be actively burning overnight. Typically, night, the temperatures drop, the relative humidities raise. The fire does what we call it lays down, which, which means it becomes much less active or inactive, but we have seen active burning throughout the night on some of these fires. So what do we expect for the rest of
0: this fire year?
3: We expect a very active fire year, especially during what we refer to as our more active part of the year, which is during the hot summer months before the monsoons come in. We've got a lot of fine fuels out there, which are the grasses, the brush, some of it's waist high in places from wet years. It's residual, what we call carryover, and it's dry now. You know, as the temperatures go up, then things dry out higher up in the elevations. We've still got a little bit of snow on Mount Lemmon, for example, but things are going to become more flammable up there as we continue to get hotter and drier. We're set up for a very active fire season with what could be fast-moving fires.
0: You mentioned that wonderful snow up on Mount Lemon. Uh, we got some last month in March. Does that help out at all, or was it just not enough?
3: It was enough to delay things. I mean, we still have a little bit of snow off of Bigelow Road and in a couple of areas. It's not a be-all, end-all because back on the oversight fire in the '90s, we saw a fire burning under snow in the Butchuga Mountains, but It tends to keep things wetter for a longer period of time that they may be a little bit more resistant to ignition uh, than they would be when they were dry.
0: The Coronado is big. A lot of people may not realize how big it is and just think of the Santa Catalinas and maybe the Rincóns as part of the Coronado. Did the Bighorn fire last year help with fire year this year at all?
3: Well, there are areas that burned last year that are less likely to burn this year. Talking about the expanse, you know, we're 1.7 million acres that are divided between 16 Sky Island mountain ranges. There's a lot of potential in a lot of places. We're
0: talking with Heidi Schull. She's with the Coronado National Forest What does the Coronado do during what used to be the off-season, really isn't now, to prepare for and help reduce the fire risk across all those units of the National Forest?
3: We're bringing on our seasonal firefighters to augment our permanent workforce of firefighters. All of our firefighting forces, we're undergoing our training and our refreshers and our qualifications. We are bringing on supplemental resources. For example, we have the Sacramento hot shots that are currently staged on the forest. We are uh, working on finalizing agreements and inspections for equipment that we contract, such as water tenders, the big tanker trucks, bulldozers, and that kind of thing. We are bringing on our aircraft. We have contract aircraft that is for our exclusive use. We do our year-round stuff of the firefighters maintaining their facilities and their engines, the physical fitness, patrolling, and we're always doing our year-round fire messaging. So those are a lot of the irons we have in the fire right now.
0: Were you all able to do some of the clearing things you've been able to do in the past in the lower parts of the season, but with COVID you know, over the last year making things a little more difficult, were you able to get to some of that?
3: We sure were. We've had several prescribed fires already. We've done a lot of thinning and piling, and then burning the piles. We have been doing mastication. What that means is it's thinning trees and grinding it up into mulch. So we've covered, I think, close to 11,000 acres. And that could be a little higher, a little low.
0: COVID has to have made life, uh, it's made life different and difficult for a lot of people. I would assume the same is true for you who are out there getting ready to fight fires. What do the protocols look like?
3: Last year, what that looked like was, you know, of course, the masking, the social distancing, the sanitizing, all all of that. But one of the things that, that was practiced was something that's a concept called module of one. And you may have heard it in other instances, but where people that are with one fire engine, for example, stay together and stay apart from other people. And, you know, like on the Bighorn Fire, we had different modules staying like in different campsites. So there's that separation, as well as the more common social distancing and masking and sanitizing.
0: Last year was a busy fire year. You talked about some of the the resources that are now coming in for the uptick in the fire year now. Does the Coronado have the resources it needs, or if we get a fire, we're going to have to call out?
3: When we get a fire, we do what's called initial attack. We send our, our, our crews or our closest forces and try to put the fire out if that's the strategy that's being used. If we can't catch it, we will order what we need. We will order air attack, we'll order an air tanker, we'll order helicopters or water tenders or whatever. We'll do that as we go into what we call extended attack. And if the incident escalates in complexity and or size to a certain extent, such as threatening communities or, or homes, then we'll call in an incident management team. Every incident plays out differently. I mean, we go through a wildfire analysis process for every fire that we have when it starts, and that helps to guide us in our decision making. But sometimes you can't predict what's going to happen on the ground.
0: That was Heidi Schul with the Coronado National Forest. Fighting a wildland fire is a team effort. It takes not only firefighters or hot shots on the ground, but also support in the air. That support can be pilots helping to spot a fire's movement, helicopters dropping water, and larger aircraft called tankers dropping lines of fire retardant to help protect homes and steer the fires. When it comes to those tankers, some of the largest belong to Albuquerque-based 10-tanker air carrier. The orange and white DC-10s are becoming synonymous with large fires in the West. The jetliners dropped nearly 450,000 gallons of the bright red fire retardant around the Bighorn and Tortolita fires near Tucson last summer. John Gould is 10 Tanker's president. He says in 2006, when the company got their first contract, they were not what fire managers were used to when it came to air attack.
4: Absolutely a new concept, I think, in terms of large air tankers. How much we would carry is so much more than anybody else anybody conceived of at the time. So it's been a long road to get acceptance in the community for something that is so different than what they've seen before. and uh, But I think we finally have. You know, I think the, certainly the firefighters on the ground are happy when they see a DC-10 roll overhead. They know they can get a lot of work out of it. And a fire needs retardant. Those firefighters on the ground need some help. And I think that the more help you can bring them, the cheaper it can be and the more effective it can be.
0: What are the advantages of using big planes? DC-10s are big planes instead of the smaller tankers that a lot of people, including it sounds like fire managers and firefighters, are used to seeing.
4: Again, the advantages are economies of scale. If you're a firefighter and you're on the ground with uh, a 10-acre fire and it's noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you know you've got the burning period in front of you you want that thing out as fast as possible because you know you can't afford to can't afford to have that thing going strong at four o'clock five o'clock in the afternoon we bring enough retardant to the party to help those guys get up the line you know secure the tail get around the fire and uh, hopefully keep that from getting a big head going but I, I think that we can help guys um, get around the fire more quickly and keep those small fires from becoming giant fires that are the ones we see in the news every day. That's the advantage it's economy scale and I think that one of the other advantages we have are some really great tanks. There are good lines and bad lines that come out of those airplanes and uh, we, we drop a really nice effective line that can depending on the coverage level we have we can get a mile of line in if it's grass fire
0: I'm sure some you know will look at a DC10 they and say oh that, that can't be a precision. Aircraft, it's too big to be precision and get into canyons. We saw you guys in canyons here in Tucson last year, so obviously precision is not a problem for a three-engine jet tanker.
4: One of the misconceptions is that we don't have an airplane that, that can fly in anything but flat, open country, where we can see what's coming, and, and actually the opposite is true. It's a great airplane for the job that it's doing. We have three engines, each of them producing over 50,000 pounds of thrust. We take off you know, with 400,000 pounds in an airplane that it was designed to take off with 575,000 pounds of stuff in it. When we get to the fire, we're light. The airplane feels really light. It's very maneuverable. And with uh, the full flaps and slats, we can set up runs that go down a very steep hill, keep our speed down low enough to have an effective drop. And then have all the power we need to get back out of it. And the visibility out of the cockpit's just great. So we actually have a, an advantage. We We are very accurate and we do a good job.
0: If you can lay a line, let's say a mile long, obviously the smaller tankers can't do that. And when they come in and lay a line, or even when you guys do, if you're continuing a line, you have to have a little overlap. With a mile long line, there's a lot less overlap, I would think. Absolutely. We carry
4: 9,400 gallons. So that's more than three other airplanes. Three regular 3,000 gallon tankers can't do that. It takes four or five to get what we can get done because of what you say, the overlap that's there and time. Time is money, right? If you need 10,000 gallons or you know 20,000 gallons on the fire, I and mean, we can bring it in two loads. We can get that done in a couple hours. You can get around the fire in a couple hours instead of working at it all day long with uh, some seats or some smaller airplanes. You know, I think that we can get things done more quickly, and it helps the firefighter on the ground.
0: We're talking with John Gould, the president of 10 Tanker. You mentioned turnaround time. DC 10s are big planes. Uh, They they take a lot of fuel. 9,400 gallons of retardant takes time to pump in. I know it doesn't take much time to get it out, so what is the turnaround time if you're on a fire like Bighorn or any of the other fires from the time the plane drops to the time 10 tanker can be back? At the air
4: tanker bases, they got real pros working there. Whether it's a BAE 146, a 3,000-gallon airplane, or a DC-10, they get all of us in and out pretty quickly. So for us, they'll get the tanks filled in less than 15 minutes with retardant. They get it in there pretty fast. So It's usually, you know, a 25 minute turnaround if we have to get fuel, as long as the air tanker base is ready to accept us when we get in. And usually they are. It's not like it takes us an hour and a half to get ready to go out and do one more mission. We've had days where we've had eight, nine missions that we've accomplished in a day if it's a short turnaround.
0: Right now, you have, I understand, on-call planes and then some tankers that are under contract. Where are the contract ones going right now?
4: Well, we have one in Fort Huachuca. It's early in the year, so there aren't too many airplanes on contract yet. We have two exclusive use contracts with the U.S. Forest Service, and then we have two more airplanes that that they have on what they call call call-when-needed contracts. So with those call-when-needed contracts, they'll pick us up when they need us, which usually means later in the summer when the fires really get going.
0: When it comes to the economies of scale you mentioned, obviously the DC-10 is a big plane. It takes more fuel. It it takes more people to fly. You you have a three-person flight crew plus ground crews and, and all of that. Does that drive up the cost at all, or is that equalized by how much you can drop in a single run?
4: to get an airplane that big, it's expensive to operate. It costs us a lot to fly, but that's not what uh, the firefighters on the ground or the fire managers are worried about. I mean, they're concerned about costs, but what we do is, you know, we make it up when we when we bring a lot to the fire. So we know based on what we see with results or what the forest service tells us, we can drop the retardant at half the cost of any other airplane out there we're expensive to get the airplane there it burns a lot of fuel as you say uh, but it gets a lot of work done i think that we're a good bargain for the firefighters that are working and for the people who are counting on the forest service or uh, whatever protection agency it is to protect their homes or their their land
0: in march of this year i guess you all kicked off the fire season but you started in mexico so you all don't fly just in the u.s
4: no, we fly all over the world. I think that this industry, this uh, large air tanker industry, it's a product of US and Canada, where you know North America started it. And it's a fairly mature uh, industry here, but the rest of the world, I think when they look around for help, uh, and you know, I have to say climate change is making a difference. I mean, we're seeing it burn more in not just here in North America, but all over the world. And people are understanding that they need Solutions to these fire problems they're having. So we've had contracts, you know, not just in Mexico, but in Australia. And, you know, we've been in Chile and we've been in Argentina. So, you know, we get around a little bit. Yeah. Northern hemisphere, it's pretty much North America. Southern hemisphere, you know, what would be our off season up here. We go to South America or Australia.
0: That was John Gould with 10 Tanker. And that's the buzz for this week. Next week, we'll take a look at what the new federal COVID relief package means for Arizona's 22 federally recognized indigenous tribes, and what Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland's confirmation means to some indigenous leaders. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson produced and edited our show. Vanessa Antiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And Duncan Moon is our interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.